thanks very much. Now this is actually um, the first stages of an ESRC project um, on the politics of monitoring um, and I was actually hoping to have a few findings to, to present here. Um, as it turns out it, it, the project's been a little bit delayed and I'm doing a number of interviews next week but there's plenty to talk about on the topic and how we're setting up the topic and we've done a, quite a lot of desk-based research already as a kind of initial stage of the project um, but it is very much work in progress so I'd welcome any feedback and ideas um, on the work. Um, now, um, the project basically looks at different patterns or different systems put in place by governments for observing and tracking policy problems and the impact of their interventions, uh, in other words, the impact of policy on um, policy problems. So it looks at how and why governments develop different sorts of monitoring systems across different policy areas or sectors. Um, once in place, what kind of impacts do those monitoring systems have? Um, some scholars have argued that they might distort decision-making processes, they might divert resources to areas which have been um, uh, kind of the object of monitoring or targets or performance indicators. Um, they might lock policymakers into certain sorts of goals or targets, even if those are decoupled from broader strategic goals. So a number of scholars have, have indicated there might be problems with this kind of target culture. Um, and I think particularly interesting is the fact that you know, the, the, the culture of targets or sort of performance-based evaluation has very much been on the rise in the UK from the 1980s onwards, starting under Thatcher administrations and very much re reaching its, its zenith, its peak, um, under New Labour and the Blair administration. But when the coalition government came into power, um, it said that it wanted to eschew this, this culture of targets and adopt a more decentralised process um, uh, and sort of move away from that kind of micromanagement from the centre. Has it done so? Well, that's a big, big question. Um, is it possible to roll back those sorts of target-based monitoring systems once they're in place? That's one of the issues that we're going to address. And with much of my research at the moment, I actually want to focus on immigration policy, but also compare it to other sectors. Um, so I think that quite often people working on politics or policy in the area of immigration get a bit kind of unisectoral and a bit absorbed in the specificities of their particular area. But I think that we can do really useful theory building when we compare immigration to other sectors um, and that we can also then shed light or have, have kind of more interesting insights on what's particular about immigration as well through comparing it to other sectors. So I'm working together with colleagues at the University of Edinburgh who are specialists in climate change and defence and more particularly defence procurement for a number of reasons I won't go into now. There is a rationale for case study selection. They're not just my mates, but they are as well. <laughs> as well. Anyway, so we're comparing these, uh, these three different areas. Um, so monitoring is, roughly speaking, the gathering and analysis of information in order to track policy problems and to measure the impact of policy interventions on such problems. Now, for the presentation today, um, I'm going to start with an empirical observation, which is that there's quite substantial variation in the way that um, targets and performance indicators are used across different policy sectors. Um, and this raises a number of interesting questions. And one is a theoretical question, how do we explain variation? So we observe that there's, a, there's quite substantial variation in the way that targets are used in immigration, defence procurement and climate change. Um, so what explains those different dynamics across those policy sectors? Um, um, and how does immigration differ from those other policy areas? 
And then there's a number of other questions which, in a sense, are, are kind of implied by this study about different dynamics and, and, and uh, determinants of, of, of systems of monitoring in different policy areas. So various questions about what sorts of considerations or pressures influence how governments monitor policy problems, and in turn, this sheds light on how they're seeking legitimacy in particular policy areas. Um, in other words, what sorts of actions or decision, decisions seem reasonable as a means of realising political goals? And I'll make it a bit clearer in a second how I think that practice of monitoring shed some light on these ideas about political rationality. Um, but uh, for today, and in the, the first stage of our research, we've been focusing on a particularly um, uh, um, uh, sort of particular episode of, of, of monitoring systems, which, as I suggested before, was a kind of the height, the peak of um, the target culture under New Labour. Um, and in particular, this was crystallised in um, the system of public service agreements, or PSAs, which were rolled out across government between 1998 and 2010. And basically, public service agreements were agreements between the Treasury and each of the main um, uh, departments in government, where they set down a number of strategic goals, related targets, and performance indicators about how best they could realise those goals. Um, and um, uh, the Treasury sort of oversaw and scrutinised how far they were achieving these targets and goals. Um, but as I said, we, we observed quite a significant variation in the way that PSAs were implemented and rolled out across our different um, policy areas. So let's think a little bit about what the, the, the you know, in a sense, what would, what factors determine what sorts of targets and performance indicators are selected in a particular policy area. Well, the, the kind of accepted, the received wisdom and the kind of management, uh, uh, the sort of management, uh, uh, um, uh, the management jargon on this sort of thing is, is that about, is that targets and, and performance indicators are a way of improving public service delivery. So in a sense, they have a, a, a disciplining function. They're put in place in order to provide incentives for officials to be more efficient and uh, more effective in delivering services um, and to um, ensure that there's value for money in the way that they perform these tasks. Now that's all very well. Perhaps some types of targets and um, certain PSAs were very much about improving as we say, outcomes or performance or delivery. But there's an important second function which we're particularly interested in this project, and it's what we call a signaling function. So um, targets and performance indicators can have a much more symbolic role. They can be a way of demonstrating to the public or to other relevant audiences that action is being taken to address a problem, um, that the government is, is prioritising a particular goal and is putting in place measures to improve... Um, uh, its performance in this particular area. So it's a kind of way of demonstrating, signalling to particular audiences that the government's addressing a problem. Um, so in this sense, targets and performance indicators operate as what has been called in the science and technology studies literature uh, boundary objects. They have to be understandable and um, sort of transferable between two quite distinct domains. On the one hand, um, the domain of kind of technocratic, bureaucratic policy making, where they're meant to influence and steer behaviour. And on the other hand, they're meant to be about um, generating, mobilising public support and confidence um, uh, in policy making. Um, 
Now I should also add that in addition to these two different types of functions, we have to bear in mind that there are a number of technical criteria that targets and performance indicators have to fulfill. Now, they have to be measurable. Now this is, I take this all from the sort of audit commission, national audit office literature, and the kind of technocratic policy managerial literature on good practice and targets and performance indicators. So targets and performance, and performance indicators to measure, to vouchsafe the realization of targets and have to be measurable, they have to be outcome-oriented, or at least it's desirable that they're outcome-oriented. So it's not so much about the investment or the inputs or the processes. It's really a culture of thinking about performance and delivery. Um, and they have to be, we might say obviously, susceptible to steering. And otherwise, in other words, there's no point in adopting a target if you're not sure you can kind of steer or discipline the relevant actors involved in delivering that target uh, in a way that will achieve the target. So in, in principle. Um, now, as I said before, the choice of different targets or performance indicators, um, I think, raises a number of interesting wider questions about political rationality um, in different policy sectors. Um, and I think depending on which of these different functions predominates, in particular whether the signalling or the disciplining function predominates, you can infer quite a lot about the target audience of um, your policy or policy making processes. So um, what kind of target audience are you aiming to mollify or appease or satisfy through introducing targets? Is it, are, you, are you worried about the Treasury and what number 10 will think of you? Are you worried about other more sort of technical peer organisations involved in policy making? Are you more concerned about lobby groups, invested interests, um, or about international treaty obligations, very much the case in climate change? Or are you worried about public opinion? Um, and secondly, and this is a distinction very close to my heart, which comes from organisational sociology and I think is really very, very useful within political science, it's, it's that your choice of targets will tell you something about the mode of legitimation which operates or which predominates within a particular bit of government. So, is your target about steering behaviour in a way that achieves certain outcomes, in other words, a kind of disciplining uh, function of a target? Um, or is it a, a more symbolic use of a target which is about signalling commitment to particular goals? Um, and there's a really interesting literature on what that says about modes of legitimation in different um, policy sectors, um, with key proponents being um, Nils Brunson um, and Scott and Meyer, um, both um, three of them organisational sociologists. So, just to come to the specific case now, now, of course, I'm not going to discuss climate change and defence procurement today for obvious reasons. I'm going to focus on the immigration case study, um, and we're going to look at the rolling out of public service agreements and the use of targets and indicators within those um, after 2000. So, if we start with the first public service agreement agreed between the Treasury and the Home Office in 2000, I mean, let's start with the strategic objectives set out. Regulation of entry to settlement in the UK, da da da, facilitation of travel by UK citizens, support of destitute asylum seekers, um, uh, and integration of those accepted as refugees. Now that sounds like a fairly kind of holistic, encompassing definition of Home Office strategies at that time. But hey, how do they select their targets? They get from that to, by 2004, 75% of asylum applications will be decided within two months. Remove a greater proportion of failed asylum seekers, and in a 2002 service delivery agreement, 
which was a kind of um, additional document which set out how they would deliver PSAs. They added a target on detention, increased detention capacity. Um, so you can see a kind of narrowing down effect from here to here. Um, so how do we explain this disparity in the case of immigration policy? Um, well, one argument could be, well, hey, targets have to meet these technical criteria. Yeah, they have to be measurable, outcome-oriented, um, and they have to be in areas where there's the potential to steer or to actually achieve um, the outcome. And arguably, asylum is one of the few areas in immigration policy where we have extremely reliable data. It's very regular. You could almost get daily updates on numbers of asylum applications and recognition rates. So arguably, it's the one that they could manage in terms of data um, uh, and they could measure. Um, having said that, that, obviously there are other areas falling under those strategic objectives which were measurable. Um, and there could be other aspects of asylum decisions, for example, which could be um, uh, susceptible to um, performance measurements such as quality of decisions. You know, how many are overturned on appeal? You know, there, there would have been other ways of doing it if you'd wanted to. Um, was it about disciplining? Well, it's true that the Home Office, um, and as it was in those days, the, well, it's still the IND, wasn't it? Um, uh, the IND was known for being particularly inefficient and that there was a backlog of cases to process, as ever. Um, but um, there are indications, and I'm going I'm to give you two arguments why, actually, the setting of these targets seem to be strangely decoupled from what was going on within the organisation. Um, and those, both of those arguments suggest that it was more about signalling. Um, now, the first of these is the removals target. Um, now, in the 2002 service delivery agreement, this target was specified as increase the number of removals to 30,000 by March 2003. In 2003, um, the Home Office unfortunately had to concede it had failed to meet this target. Um, now, the, Home of the um, House of Commons Home Affairs Committee, uh, as with other House of Commons committees, tend to adopt a rather you know, moderate, um, uh, officious type of language. Uh, really, I mean, it's really quite surprising when you're reading this report and it kind of stands out in the text as a particularly scathing attack. It said, we are at a loss to understand the basis for the belief that, the, that a target of 30,000 removals a year was achievable. And ministerial pronouncements on the subject are obscure. Um, it's surely not too much to expect that if it's thought necessary to set targets for removals, they should be rational, <laughs> rational and achievable. Um, so um, the 2004 public service agreement then tried to make the target a bit more modest and change from a numerical, specific numerical target to what was called a directional target. In other words, um, uh, the number of removals will increase. <laughs> that, was all, that was all that they said in their target. And yet they still failed to achieve that target. Um, now this to me suggests that the setting of this target was decoupled from a realistic organisational appraisal. Perhaps there was never an organisational appraisal of what could be achieved. Um, and certainly it was a target which was not something which could be, um, let's say, realistically or, or feasibly steered by the Home Office. Um, so why would you select that target given what we um, know about sort of the criteria, technical criteria for setting targets? Um, the second example I want to focus on is the famous Blair Newsnight Pledge of 2003. I don't know if any of you recall this. 
will know about this, but um, uh, in a Newsnight interview, I think it was with Jeremy Paxman, uh, Blair, out of the blue, seemingly <laughs> promised that he would halve asylum seeker numbers within a year. Now, I gather that David Blunkett was aware of this, perhaps his private office was aware of this, but, but no, pretty much nobody else in the Home Office was aware of this. It was a you know, sort of plucked out of the blue, top-down um, uh, political declaration. Um, and it hadn't been part of the 2000 or 2002 targets. Um, uh, it was rapidly built into the next 2004 public service agreement target, but in a slightly more modest fashion, reduce unfounded which is unfounded asylum claims. Um, now, um, as luck would have it, <laughs> asylum applications did um, decrease um, from around 2002, three, um, throughout the 2000s. Whether this had to do with the target or the policies which were adopted um, uh, in order to achieve this target is hotly debated. Um, if we look at um, numbers across European countries, we see a decline pretty much across the board over this period. We might have experts on this data here. Um, uh, so, I mean, it's kind of debatable whether government interventions actually achieve this target, but the Home Office certainly took credit for it. So, in the 2004 Autumn Performance Report, the Home Office said, you know, new asylum applications have fallen 65% since their peak in October 2002. This was performance against targets. Um, uh, so, you get this year-on-year -year reduction, um, but was it actually through factors that the Home Office could control? Um, uh, had this target been selected um, uh, with, let's say, well-grounded confidence of the Home Office's ability to steer um, numbers of asylum applications, doubtful. I'm going to be doing interviews to sort of try to uh, work out what home, official, home, home office officials thought at the time. Um, but also, I think even more importantly, it was very much a top-down, very political um, uh, definition of a target. It didn't seem really to be about, um, uh, uh, let's say, based on a thorough reflected appraisal of how um, organisational processes within the department could be steered or disciplined in a way to achieve an outcome. It was very much about signalling. Um, so, I mean, in a way, this, this conclusion would be of little surprise to people who follow immigration politics. We know it's highly populist. Uh, we know that it's very much driven by, uh, let's say, public opinion and populist narratives um, about what priorities should be in this policy area. So in that sense, it's also um, not particularly, um, uh, not particularly um, surprising. Um, now, the asylum issues we saw sort of calm down in the second half of the 2000s and political attention focused more on issues of border control and then obviously A8 migration um, uh, around that period. Um, so in the 2007 public service agreement, we see a focus on border control, securing our borders, preventing abuse of our immigration laws, managing migration to boost the UK, um, with new areas covered, identity management, the whole e-borders agenda was emerging quite strongly then. Um, and you also have a parallel trend towards in a sense, backing away from that kind of very, you know, uh, that period of, of zeal uh, around the target culture, and you get a number of 
um, critiques of, of sort of the PSA system, which say it's too centralised, it doesn't give enough autonomy to uh, decentralised actors involved in delivery. There are too many targets. We need less targets. I don't know how that's going to help. How that was thought to help things. Having less presumably would require more focus on those fewer number of targets. Um, but in line with this, the Home Office then um, just had one target which was completely decoupled from any of that, which was swifter processing of asylum applications. Um, now, with the reduction in the number of applications, this was low-hanging fruit, you know? So there, there were fewer applications, and they were able to meet that target. They'd obviously learnt their lessons and decided to be more modest in the types of targets that they set. They didn't have any targets in relation to, to A8, um, obviously. Um, now, what, what, what are we to make of this? Apart from the rather banal point that, yeah, of course it's a populist area, of course they're going to select the things which they think are going to play well with the Daily Mail. Yes, fine. But, but there, I think we can, we can you know, if we analyse this, um, uh, these developments, I think we can arrive at some more interesting insights about policymaking in this area. Um, so, I mean... Over this period, and especially from sort of 2000 to 2004, we really see a coincidence of, on the one hand, this kind of target craze, target mania, and on the other hand, the asylum crisis, as it was seen. Um, so in a sense, um, in that context, targets become deployed as an instrument uh, used by the government, used by the Home Office, to signal that Labour, the Labour government, is disciplining. So in a way, um, it's, it's, a, it, it's a way of trying to build confidence in, in, in what Labour's doing through signalling that it's adopting targets which will discipline. Um, so in a sense, it's a kind of mixture of the two. Um, and I think in, a, in particular for Labour, if you read media coverage around that, that, that time, um, it was constantly being held up for, for sort of transgressions and for, you know, it was being pretty much sort of permanently scandalised by, um, uh, by, a, by a populist tabloid press which was sort of exposing flaws and transgressions in Labour management of asylum and immigration. So it was especially important for the Labour government to demonstrate to signal control, um, to lock itself in, in a way, to certain sorts of um, pledges or, or targets for delivering control. Uh, and in the context of targets being the instrument to do that, then it used, it deployed those particular instruments <coughs> in order to achieve this kind of signalling effect, even if they weren't really the right kind of instrument to do that, given the various problems that we've seen. So it was a kind of pressure to adopt modish concepts of measurement and performance, um, the lure of responding to populist constructions of, of the problem, especially around asylum, and um, but obviously the risks um, of adopting this instrument in this context was that actually the Home Office had quite limited capacity to steer these processes and the way in which the targets were selected were, as we saw, quite decoupled from realistic organisational appraisals of what might be possible. Um, so, I mean, this... this tells us quite a lot about immigration policy making in comparison to other sectors. Um, uh, it tells us something about the target audience, political, not technical, um, and that's very much in distinction to the other two policy sectors. So in climate change we get a much more technocratic process of selecting targets, also in line with Kyoto um, commitments. So it's international treaty obligations plus a very technocratic, um, sort of nerdy scientific community um, gathered around that issue. Um, and defence procurement, which is all about 
preventing inefficiency is a very managerial type of target where number 10 uh, and the Treasury in particular um, is very much trying to rein in overspend uh, within the Ministry of Defence. So immigration really is quite different from those other two policy areas in terms of the target audience. Um, in terms of the mode of legitimation, well, most areas of immigration are quite symbolic in the sense that it's quite difficult to observe and measure the impacts of policy interventions. Um, targets create an opportunity for measurement, so you're almost kind of um, shifting from a kind of symbolic mode of legitimation to an output or um, action-based mode of legitimation. Um, but obviously that doesn't work if you can't influence the outcomes. Um, so, I mean, taken together, targets in this area mobilise political support or trust through signalling discipline, but you know, I would say that the signalling remains paramount, even at the expense of not ultimately achieving um, uh, the disciplining effect. Uh, so, in a sense, the meeting of the targets becomes almost incidental. Um, and that, just to conclude, that raises some quite perplexing, interesting questions about political rationality in this area, or perhaps in any populist area of policy making. So, and there are kind of issues about rationality, political rationality and timing. So when do you expect to reap the dividends of your targets? Um, is it at the point of announcing the target? Well, if it's all about signalling, that's all you're really thinking about. You're thinking, well, if we promise this, we'll appease the electorate and, you know, the Daily Mail will get off our back. But, you know, <laughs> you know presumably you have to think about what's going to happen if you fail to realise those targets down the line, and that might also be within an electoral cycle. Now, political scientists, when they think about timing, think about electoral cycles normally. But obviously you're going to be held up for not realising your target within, you know, a... a, a, a <coughs> within the period of your administration, within a parliamentary term. So it's a highly risky strategy. <coughs> now, just to conclude, what would explain this preoccupation with immediate gratification versus delayed gratification, i.e., you know, once you've met your target? And one is this idea of permanent campaign. So this is this idea that um, rather than just campaigning around election time every four or five years, politicians are permanently trying to whip up support, mobilise support, um, for their policies, um, so arguably this is a kind of this is you know the prevalent mode of de contemporary politics now, and it's just normal that you you, know, you need to keep up momentum um, of support for your policies. That could be one explanation, but obviously with the risk that you lose out if you don't realise the target. The second explanation for for this timing paradox, in a way, could be that it's a response to a problem of trust. So it's more about gaining public confidence through locking yourself into a target or a pledge. And we know that Labour has done that kind of thing on public spending. In a sense, it could be seen as a parallel thing. You lock yourself into a, a particular type of pledge um, so that you can kind of gain the trust of the public who don't, you know, they don't trust you on immigration, they don't trust you on the economy, um, etc. Arguably, the Tories are doing a, a similar thing in the face of UKIP. Um, uh, criticism of their immigration policy. Um, but a third one might be, well, it's just part of the dynamic of political competition. Um, your op opposition parties are promising this, so you have to kind of up your game. It's a kind of one-upmanship. There's a kind of a irresistible pressure through the dynamics of party politics. 
Um, and a fourth explanation might be a kind of more psychological explanation. It's a kind of form of political insecurity. And I think you do observe differences between politicians in terms of, you know, in a sense, how broad-shouldered they are in terms of coping with a phase of unpopularity as opposed to sort of constantly checking focus groups and media coverage in order to... Um, respond to what they see as immediate concerns. So I do think, I mean, I'm not saying that I'm going to answer this problem through this project, but I just do think this is a good example of the way in which analysing, monitoring, analysing how policymakers try to observe and get credit for um, uh, realisation of particular types of policies sheds quite a lot of light on, on broader questions of political rationality. Thanks very much. <laughs>